Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Well, we are in uh, week three of Acts, and while we are looking at a giant chunk today, I'm not going to go through it all. We're more doing an overview. Uh, but just to remind you guys, we do have Q&R afterwards, so if there are any questions, just write them down, or if you'd like to text in, you're welcome to do so as well. Um, and then I will try my best to address those questions in this time, and if not, later on I'll follow up with a phone call or email. Well, in week one, we saw the early church receive the final instruction from Jesus, right? To, to wait patiently for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would descend, and, the, and then Jesus told them they would then go to the ends of the earth to tell people of the good news of how God had become king through Jesus and to announce the arrival of his kingdom and to invite people to join in. Now, in this, this is the promise that Yahweh made all the way back in Genesis, in the beginning of his people with Abraham, that all the nations of the earth would be filled, or would be blessed, and that his descendants would number the stars in the sky. Now last week, they were waiting for the gift of the Spirit, and we saw them replace Judas, dealing with their abandonment of him, and they replace him with Matthias. But now the day has come. The helper, the comforter, the advocate, the one whom Jesus said was greater than I, is here. The Spirit is to descend upon the church. So in light of this morning's passage, we're going to look at three components. A people of Babel, a person who was broken, and a people of blessing. So to begin, let's look at a people of Babel. Uh, in the first part of the chapter, looking at verses 1 through 4, just briefly walking through. We have four verses that serve as a pivotal prologue for this section of Scripture, or an exposition of what is to come. Now, the rest of Acts arguably can't happen if what happens here doesn't happen. If the Spirit doesn't come, we wouldn't be here. This wouldn't be preserved for us. The church wouldn't have been birthed. Looking at verse 1, Luke writes, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all in one place. Now, Pentecost was this agricultural holiday that uh, Jewish people were accustomed to uh, celebrating or commemorating. In it, they would renew their covenant to God. And if possible, a lot of Jewish people would journey back to Jerusalem. That's why we see in this passage, there's a lot of, the, the, the town is flooded. It's almost like it's a big festival and the Pentecost Sunday takes place, or the Pentecost Day, it wouldn't have been Sunday, takes place 50 days after the Passover meal, which we are right around 50 days after the Lord's Supper, right? The Last Communion, Maundy Thursday. And then in verse 2 and 3, we see suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. 
Now, it doesn't say there was actually wind. It says a sound like wind. Uh, David G. Peterson, uh, in his commentary, he writes, there was no actual wind, but it sounded like wind. The sound filled the room. In Scripture, wind is an emblem for the spirit or creative breath, the pneuma of God. Pneuma is this word that we use. It's the study of the Holy Spirit. Pneumatology is the study of the Spirit. This was a sign that God was about to accomplish a mighty work of renewal. This, this language here of a mighty wind, it, is, it takes us back to Genesis 1. This is Genesis 1-2 language. A wind from God or the Spirit of God swept over the face of the waters. Luke is signaling for us. This is something calling us back to something. To the first of the two creation stories, he says recreation is about to commence. And David Peterson, he goes on, he says, fire symbolizes the presence of the Holy One to communicate with His people and guide them. The Pentecostal gift is God's empowering presence with His people in a new and distinctive way, revealing His will and leading them to fulfill His purposes for them as the people of the new covenant. Now, when Luke says the tongues like fire separated and came to, the, to rest on each of them, the implication is that the blessing of God's Spirit was for each individual member of the believing community. Now, some of us may ask, uh, the youth ministry were going through the same book, and a few weeks ago we asked, was there really fire? Were there really tongues? Who's to say? Uh, most commentators that I read think it's purely symbolic. Um, but regardless of how you land, the reality is there is a significant imagery here for us utilizing these languages here, or this language that uh, Luke is utilizing here. He's calling back to these themes all throughout the Old Testament. And then in verse 4, he says, All of them were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in languages as the Spirit gave them ability. So we see the Spirit as poured out upon the early church, the promised gift of the Spirit has now arrived and it empowers them to speak in other languages that, that these people have no way of knowing. That's why in a few verses, these people are like, aren't they Galileans? What, what that is, they're, they're essentially asking, aren't these like uneducated blue-collar people? They're not, they're not cosmopolitan. They're not Ivy League uh, people. These people are working-class fisher folks or, or agricultural workers. How are they fluent in all of these languages. Now we may be confused why there are so many different languages spoken by Jewish people, and this is what it means by that when he refers to them, the Jewish people of the diaspora. Around the 8th to 5th century BCE, the, the Jewish people started spreading throughout the Middle East, and because of it, they learned many, their dialects kind of evolved, kind of, if you travel throughout English, or er, throughout America, right, our English is pretty different even in this young country. This is six to eight centuries in development of even their own Hebrew being developed. Along with that, they're spread throughout the Roman Empire and the, oh, I forgot the empire's name in the East, but in, in that empire as well, they speak predominantly Aramaic. They are developing and understanding, learning many different dialects and languages. And so for working class folks who likely didn't go very far in education, it is unlikely that they knew these languages and the, and the people around them are bewildered by it. 
Now, this is where the passage turns to its rising action. This is, this is a Babel retelling. And this is where I say a people of Babel. Luke is alluding to the Tower of Babel. And we'll get to that in just a moment. This tension is brewing in the crowd. And, and in verses 5-12, through 12, these people in particular, there's a lot of shadows, a lot of imagery of the Tower of Babel. These crowds gather. They come uh, they're gathered from the Mediterranean and throughout the Middle East. But still, because uh, they and their descendants are from this area, this hometown where they've journeyed to, they all speak a common language. And yet, the Spirit has gifted them the ability to speak to them in their unique languages. Still, there are many represented here as Luke records uh, beginning in verse 9. Even though Luke says people from every nation, it's, it's likely not every nation. We generally we generalize things like that. We know that there were other nations on the earth at this point and they were not present. But he's referring to these list of nations that he lists out in verse 9 and 10 which are a callback, and we'll mention them in a second. So, people of Babel. Luke is recounting Babel for us. Found in Genesis 11. If you turn there, or I believe it's going to be on the screen, the writer of this part of Genesis, they write, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from, from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks, and burned them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens or the skies, some of your translations may say. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now on the screen, you'll see a few examples of what we now think the tower could have looked like. Uh, the second one is a drawing of a similar tower where the story is believed to have found its roots. Uh, a story such as this, uh, in Genesis 1-11, through 11, each of those stories has roots. There's common stories throughout the Middle East and the ancient world. And similarly, this one, it's called Edomen Anki, which it's Sumerian, not Samaritan, Sumerian, interestingly enough, means the house of the foundation of heaven and earth. That they referred to their building as such. And so it's likely that the people in this story are building something of similar uh, stature, of a similar design. The writer goes on in verse 5, he says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. Who is the us that the Lord is talking of there? Uh, generally, we, we believe it to be this council of uh, heaven's armies. Uh, it's not just God talking amongst the Godhead. So the Lord, in verse 8, scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, 
because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So, what do we see in this story? What do we see that Yahweh did here? Or what's taken place? There's a specific group of people. They want to make a name for themselves. Uh, the children's book stories, I remember, always said that they wanted to build a tower to, the, to God. Um, it doesn't say that, but I don't know if you recall that in your children's classes. That's not what it says. It just says build a, a building to the heavens. Um, they want to build up into the clouds rather than build outwards so they don't have to continue moving further out from one another. But namely, they want to make a name for themselves. So what does Yahweh do? Yahweh confuses them, scatters their languages, and scatters them. They are to go out to all the earth as they were originally called to do from the early Genesis account. To fill the earth and take care of it. And so now, how does this, why, why does this tie to Acts 2? What does this have to do? What does Genesis 11 have to do with Acts 2? Well, we know the references of the nations in Acts 2 are literally the present day references of the nations just prior to the Babel story in Genesis 10. And technically, Genesis 10 likely takes place after Genesis 11 chronologically, but um, it is literarily taking place before Genesis 11. But these nations, Luke is calling back, these people would know, his readers would know that he is referring to this story. But more importantly, Luke is showing us that God, through the power of the Spirit, is about to reverse the effects of the Babel story. So while in Babel, God brought confusion to the people, God's now going to bring understanding. While in Babel, God created language barriers causing other divisions amongst the people, God has, in this instance, empowered the church to break language barriers and thus other divisions through the power of the Spirit. And while in Babel, God crushed the unity of the people around godlessness and idolatry, God is now about to scatter a united people around Him for the sake of gathering others into this unity. Babel and its effects are about to be undone. Now in the Genesis story, what came after Babel? If you recall, Genesis 12, right at the end of 11, is where we meet a gentleman by the name of Abram, who later becomes Abraham, right? And Sarai, who becomes Sarah. Rather than building up, Yahweh caused them to go out. And rather than making a name for themselves, Yahweh gives them new names. Abraham and Sarah. And rather than saying put, Yahweh tells Abraham that through their family, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So go. Do you see the parallels? The start of God's people, his interaction with Abram, and now the start and the recreation of God's people in the church. There are many parallels here. Many connecting points that Luke is drawing for us. Now, although they were a people of Babel, a person would be broken or was broken. And that's what Peter gets at in the sermon. If you turn back to Acts 2, the summary of Peter's sermon that Luke records points to the gathered the gather Jewish people to Jesus of Nazareth. This rising action, it, it continues to develop. It's stewing to its climax. Now for the first time on this side of the resurrection and ascension, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is pronounced. 
Luke writes in verse 22, he says, you, to the crowds, he says, you are the Israelites. Listen to what I have to say to you. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now these, these signs and wonders that are being alluded to here, these are evidence that the age of the Spirit has come. That the messianic era has been fulfilled. It's, been, it's begun in Jesus' resurrection. But it's saying new ground is being broken. New terrain is being taken for the kingdom. The Abrahamic covenant is about to begin being fulfilled. Jump down to verse 32. Peter says, Then Jesus raised, uh, then this Jesus God raised up, and all, and of that, all of us are witnesses. Again, there's this appeal to witnesses or proofs here. That's key for us to notice. We'll, we'll just kind of earmark that. But he's not just saying a nice story. No, he's, he's actually pointing out he's giving evidence but Peter goes on to show that Jesus is the greater David this person in the Old Testament that the people of the Jewish faith would have known and revered and thought to be their king and he says that the world has been placed as Jesus's Footstool. Jesus is on his throne. Continue on to verse 36. He says, Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Again, this messianic age, it's begun and its blessings are beginning to be poured out. So Jesus was he says, was beaten, he was bruised, he was broken. Why? So that those who were suffering in their brokenness, the people of Babel, could be restored and made to become a people of blessing. The fulfillment of the promise that Yahweh made to Abraham back in the beginning of God's people in Genesis 12, this is coming, and that's where we get to a people of blessing. We see this transition. We see... This recreation, forming people, taking people out of being a people of Babel and transforming them into a people of blessing through the broken person of Jesus. In verses 37 through 42, we see thousands of people respond to the call of repentance in light of the gospel. Verse 37 says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Um, for me, this language, cut to the heart, is weird. I don't know that we utilize this very much. I don't know when the last time you've used this phrase before. Uh, but you know that feeling when like, you know you shouldn't do something or it's probably like, not the best to go do something, but then you're still like, shrug it off and do it anyways and there's not a lot of regrets? Um, that's not cut to the heart here. <laughs> that's, that's, that's not what this is. Th no, this is, this is conviction that overflows into repentance, that overflows into to change, to going a different way, making a different choice, realizing 
that we are a different person now. The reformers summarize this trajectory with three words. They would say guilt, grace, gratitude. Uh, a person must see their guilt before God before they can understand God's grace, which leads them to respond in gratitude. That is what we're seeing here, this cut to the heart. They see their guilt. They respond, what must we do? In verse 38, Peter calls them to response in gratitude. Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, forgiveness is a result of one's repentance. It's a little unclear here, but some have taken this here, the repent and be baptized, as a be baptized and baptism, the act of it actually saves you. Uh, but baptism here is a figurative washing away of one's sins. It is not the actual salvific moment. He, he goes on in verse 39, For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Him. Again, that's Abrahamic language, right? For your children and your children. And he says, and he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, save yourselves from this, crooked, uh, this corrupt generation. Um, I love what, when I first read this, I thought, is that the sermon? Because that's a really short sermon. I should really trim mine. And you guys are probably like, amen. Um, but <laughs> these are all summaries in here. This would not be a sermon. A sermon is more like about the length of Hebrews. Some think that's a sermon, right? But it's likely here, culturally speaking, they would, they would gather sometimes for hours. It seems to be here that Luke is summarizing, saying he keeps going. He goes on and on with arguments and exhortations. And essentially he's saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Uh, Craig Keener summarizes Peter's words here saying, embracing God's reign means accepting a new king. Embracing God's reign means accepting a new king. Now, this is relevant every day and to every people, right? Every culture deals with this. Every time period deals with this. Embracing the reign of God and thus the king of all kings above any other king or president or emperor or so forth. And then in verse 41... Luke summarizes, he says, So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 persons were added. Now these numbers in this time, the way they ancient historiography could be exaggerated up or down, it's just a generalization. It doesn't seem like they went around doing a head count. Um, but it's just roughly 3,000 people. And the question usually begs, how did they baptize 3,000 people at once? Uh, in those days, you could baptize yourself. It was not uncommon to just jump in the river and just like group baptism. So it, it might be, seem a little odd for us, uh, but that is perhaps how they uh, beefed up the quota, if you will. Uh, they, they, never mind. Verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves then to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is their adequate response to the gospel, right? We conclude with a sort of epilogue right after this, and that's the last part of our passage, 43 through 47. I'm not going to touch too much on it because we talked about this a few months ago. We spoke on this very passage. But generally, 
This is a resolution. This is that after a, after a movie where the tension, uh, everything's resolved and you're starting to see, okay, the results. Where are the people, where are your characters going next? And, so, and if the epilogue's good, you're kind of like, I want to keep going with them. I want to I stay with them. I remember the end of The Return of the King, the Lord of the Rings movie, where you're like, I know it went on for like four hours, especially if you watch the extended version. But you're like, man, I want to spend more time with them. That's a good epilogue. If this was where Luke ended, we would be left with like, yeah, I want to spend more time with these people. I want to see how this unfolds. I want to get to know them more. And we have 26 more chapters. That's what Acts is setting up here. That's what Luke is setting up here for us. But these summary statements, they come up periodically in the book of Acts. They are these literary devices that Luke uses to summarize what just happened and is also proving, kind of like in an essay format, how this supports his thesis, how this supports Acts 1.8. If you recall Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, right? They just received him. And you will be my witnesses. They were just witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, this was Jerusalem. And that's why we get a summary statement at the end there. They've just checked Jerusalem off the list. They are no longer unreached. There's thousands of more people groups to go, but right now we got one. The gospel has been proclaimed, realized, accepted in the people of Jerusalem. We see them becoming a people of blessing them. They bless one another in this passage in their lives together. And that's where we begin to see the Abrahamic promise fulfilled. Their life together. And if you keep reading Acts, you will see the way they live together is radical. It's countercultural. It's something that I don't want to do in my instinct, right? I don't want to sell my possessions and bring them to everyone and be like, yeah, sure, here's, here's my whatever. Use it. I like my space. I like my stuff. I'll let you borrow it, but bring it back and it better not be scratched, right? <laughs> no, they're willing. It, the, the gospel challenges them. It changes them. It calls them to be a new people that sees their entire being as a means of blessing others. And this is what the Spirit is doing in and through them. And in the coming chapters, Luke will help us see and become this blessing all the way to the ends of the earth. For them, that's, that's Rome in this story. Although they are likely aware of China and, and things, uh, other regions of that sort. But at this point, they're, they're going to the epicenter of what they believe to be human civilization at that point. They're going to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. The covenant with Abraham being fulfilled through the commission of the church. There's the tie together. Now, what is the significance of this passage for us today? Why should we care about this? Acts is kind of odd to read and be like, how, do, how does this relate to us? It seems like just a lot of stories, right? One after another. How do we actually take this? How is this to encourage us, challenge us, shape us? Well, this passage in specifically, I think, speaks to a few timeless matters. One, it speaks of human barriers. Uh, the effects of Babel are still alive and well, right? 
Obviously, there's thousands of languages. But what came with Babel was seemingly endless barriers. Insurmountable barriers, right? Strife, division, chaos. Things that separate. They don't sustain. They don't build up. No, they, they break us down. They bruise us. They separate us. They send us on our separate ways. Divisions are alive and well today. We know this in our discourse, right? Our social and political discourse. People don't just simply have differing opinions or perspectives, right? Literally this morning in one of the newspapers I was reading, uh, poses someone of the other side as an existential threat to democracy. And that's kind of how the sides are posed, right? They're posed as radical, these existential threats, that this could be the end of blank, whether it be a nation or a, a type of government or, and so forth. And we see this in slogans, right? A lot of save this or bring back this or everyone kind of utilizes these, this rhetoric. I recall, you know, as I be, you know, I'm only 31, so the, the main, the earliest president I recall is, is W. Bush. Um, but for four presidents now that I've been a little bit more aware of, every single one I've heard been called the, both the best and the worst president ever. Um, I don't know how that happens. It's crazy. Uh, everyone is the best and the worst. And each time it just keeps getting better or worse. Uh, somehow we keep topping each other. These are extreme languages, right? Recency bias is alive and well. But it is our rhetoric of, it is our, uh, in our inclination, it is the babble in us to see the chaos, the hell, if you will, of someone who has a different view or perspective of us. We see this in the way we refer to some other nations or people groups as well, or other social ideologies. This is a pretty prevalent thing in our day. Now, uh, the commentator I referred to last week, uh, he's from Southeast Asia. I believe his last name is, or his first name is Ahith. He, he kind of thought on this because he spends time in, he's a, he's a pastor in Southeast Asia, a pretty different culture, reading his commentary, to just hear how he's processed and applied these passages to his context. But, for him, he points out that the barriers of Babel have lost their power. They're coming undone. And what does this mean for us? The pouring out of the Spirit on these people from the start demonstrates this redemptive arc of justice that is accelerating in the age of the Spirit. That from Babylon, from that time, things are, God's goodness is being undone. It's being tainted. And now, through the recreation, that is powerless and it's being undone. It's being reshaped. God is recreating His people. And so things that divide us, like language, race, gender, class, party, nationality, and so forth, these things, Ahith says, no longer are to divide us. Interestingly enough, um, he points out that, you know, in the Babel time, they needed to speak in one language. We no longer need to do that to commune with one another. Even if we don't have the same language with brothers or sisters in Christ, 
We have the Spirit that unites us. No longer, as in this passage, do, they need, do we need to go to God's space, this center in Jerusalem, to commune with Him. No, God is here. God is everywhere. God is in our midst. God is amongst us and within us. And no longer do we need to gather simply at one place, as they were doing. No, God is omnipresent. Craig Keener adds to it that Acts 1-8 commandment, it begins to, to be fulfilled here. It, these speaking in tongues are a foreshadow when, of that Acts 1-8, of going to the ends of the earth, going to all the languages, going to all the people groups. That is what this is right at the beginning. This is starting right here. Here's how this is going to look. All of you are about to speak all these different people's languages for a moment. You're about to communicate to them, my goodness, my kingdom come, and this is a foreshadow of what is to come. Acts 1.8 being fulfilled. Keener also pointed out that this Pentecost, what it does, it breaks down the barriers of, of, of class, right? And gender and ethnicity, in particular within the church. He says Pentecost democratizes the mission of all believers. Luke notes here many times that it is all people it is all these people here gathered that receive the Spirit, that are, that are speaking in tongues. He refers to the Joel prophecy that I didn't touch on, but in 17 through 20, it's younger, older, men and women, slaves, free. These people, everyone, will prophesy, will speak in my name. This is radically different. He says all nations. Peter may not realize what he's saying here, because we know a few chapters from now, Peter thinks the gospel still for the Jewish people. But I think we can infer that God, through him, is helping him speak of what is to come. That all people groups, there is no longer this men are higher than women, certain races are higher than the other, certain classes are higher than the other. No, we are all one in Christ. And we are all filled with the same Spirit. We are all called to the same King, to be a part of the same kingdom and to proclaim the same good news. Thus, in light of human barriers, I think this passage is quite relevant. We're to be one church consisting of diverse cultures and peoples. That's why our roots, our Anabaptist roots, have historically sought to resist uh, resist affirming or being a part of one kingdom or nation. Rather, uh, we opted to maintain our allegiance to one above all others. That the kingdom to be our one place that we pledge our allegiance and other places we are earthly citizens. But when it comes down to it, our citizenship in the kingdom is above our citizenship in the states or wherever God may call you someday. That is our roots of Anabaptism in the 16th century. And we were killed for it. Millions. Because we refused to align ourselves with a flag. We refused to tie our baptism to a people group, or to a nation. We were one of the only ones in the Reformation that did this. I think this passage also speaks to evangelism. And I think this is prevalent for us here. As we 
you know, in this season post-COVID, getting back out, people starting to be comfortable connecting with people again. How do we rub shoulders? I don't know about you. Um, I feel like I lost my ability to talk with people as well in the last couple years. And again, another piece I read this morning in the news was uh, about like, yeah, you likely, your personality has likely changed because of COVID. It's crazy what the effects of it. It's changed your personality, the way you can relate with and engage. Aaron and I are constantly, like we had, we had these new friends over a few weeks ago, or was that last Friday? And before they're coming over, we're literally like, oh my gosh, how do we do this again? Like I forgot what it's like to make new friends. Uh, that have, we have no reason to be in a room we're trying to forge a relationship with. They're not church people. They're not neighbors. It's just we're trying to build a friendship. Oh my gosh, I forgot. But this passage, I think, is relevant for evangelism, the way of connecting with people who don't know Jesus. Notice that for Peter, evangelism, it's a response to a question in verse 14 and 15. Often we see people on the corner with signs that are trying to answer a question that almost no one is asking. A lot of people are not asking, how do I get to heaven or how do I escape hell? A lot of people don't believe in those things, so why are we answering that question? Uh, That's not the main problem. Notice here that in this gospel message and in none of the gospel messages in the book of Acts, hell nor heaven, none of that is mentioned. That's not the point. The point is new life, is new creation, is becoming who they were intended to be. But man, if people don't believe in heaven, there's no reason to say, hey, where are you going to go when you're going to die? Do you know where you're going to go? He's like, well, I don't, I think I'm dead. That's why, you know, well, culturally we're seeing more and more people uh, cremate for the sake of becoming one with the earth, right? We're seeing in some states and nations where they're legalizing the ability to become uh, soil, right? So we can become reincarnate. We believe in different things. Evangelism is not simply us trying to tell people what questions they should ask. No, it's engaging, getting to know them, meeting them where they're at, trying to figure out what are the deepest questions of their soul. What are they searching for in life? Where are they placing their hope? And then in that, you are kind of dissecting and asking, you're trying to see where are they missing Jesus? What is it that they're looking to and making as their babble? What are they building? What tower are they building in their life? How are they building their name instead of submitting to the name of Jesus? That's how Peter does evangelism here, and we'll see that over and over and over again through the book of Acts. We are not to start with our own questions. Uh, Instead, we are to start with the questions of those who don't know Jesus. But notice, Peter doesn't seem to fear monger. He doesn't, like I said, he doesn't mention hell or heaven or eternal life here. No, he meets them where they're at. The big points are the meaning of life, the recreation, finding their hope. Where are they placing their hope and seeing, hey, Jesus is the better David. Jesus is not in his grave anymore. No, if anything, he's resurrected. He's on his throne. The new age has come. This is what you've been looking for. Don't miss it. You're looking for this, right? That takes knowing people. That takes rubbing shoulders, being in relationship with them, having cups of coffee, having meals with, 
playing games with, whatever, having fun conversations and, and just getting to know them. Learning, <clears throat> learning how their soul works, becoming akin to the rhythm of their soul. So I think these two points are particularly relevant for us. That human barriers are not are undone, and they are becoming undone, and we are to be a part of that. And that evangelism, not just simply standing on a corner or passing out tracts, but life to life, meeting people, knowing people in the marketplace, in our jobs, in our, in our homes, in our schools, whatever it may be, befriending them over a long time, and then helping people see and know that Jesus is what they have been longing for. And lastly, it speaks of hope. God gives us hope now. God gives us His Spirit. In this passage, we are to see the reality-altering effects of the Gospel. In the Spirit, we are transformed from a people of Babel to a people of blessing because of a person, of the person of Jesus, who is broken on our behalf. The good news of King Jesus and the kingdom of God brings new life to all who hear, repent, believe in, and follow Jesus through the power of the Spirit. And in His breaking, Jesus both proves and makes Himself to be the true bread of life, broken for many, that many would be made whole. And those of us who, hung, or who eat will hunger no more. Rather, we will join in and the, see the kingdom of our broken Savior, King Jesus, breaking into our midst on earth as it is in heaven. Blessings in a world of Babel to the ends of the earth. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship, or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.